So hold questions from that first topic, and we're going to move into the last of our topics, which is the disengagement. So, I originally on the flyer listed the disengagement as well as the Rabin assassination. So, that ain't happening, the, um, to manage both of those. Um, but what I want to talk about here um, is a rift which developed since 2005 in the religious Zionist community and how it has influenced matters in the state surrounding the disengagement. Now, I'm going to talk about what disengagement was in a moment. Um, We'll take some time to explain. But one thing I want to say outright at the beginning, I am not litigating the disengagement here. This is not a discussion about whether we should or should not have pulled out of Aza, right? Maybe the rockets that have been raining down for the last few days from Aza can do a better job than I can of making that, uh, making that argument on either side. But, the, but the, the disengagement essentially is the decision of the Israeli government implemented in the summer of 2005 to unilaterally withdraw from Aza, from the Gaza Strip. You know that in Hebrew it's Aza rather than Gaza. That begins with the guttural letter Ayin, which is pronounced in the throat. And therefore, for people who, don't, who aren't used to uh, that kind of a sound, the ah sound, it often became, in the early days under the British, it became Gaza, and that's what stuck in the media. In Hebrew, though, you would say Aza. And I'm going to end up going back and forth, probably. But, um, but the decision of the Israeli government in 2005 to withdraw from that whole section of land, which included uprooting thousands of Jews who were living there and moving them from their homes, from their communities. That's what we mean when we say disengagement. And the impact it has had um, has been so strong. If you take a look at source number eight, there's a journalist by the name of Yair Shelek who did remarkable work in, uh, in, in researching the impact of the disengagement, in particular on the youth, not exclusively. But here he quotes a fellow by the name of Itai Elitsur. Itai Elitsur's father was one of the leaders of what's called Yesha. Yesha is an acronym that stands for Yehuda Shomron Aza, Judea and Samaria, what is colloquially termed the West Bank of the Jordan, and Aza. And there's a, the Yesha Council was supposed to represent the Jews who were living in those areas. So this fellow's father was on that council. He refers in the quote to Amona. Amona, a Jewish community, a.k.a. settlement in the West Bank, which was uprooted by the government as being illegal. So he says the following. Had we acted in Gush Katif... During the disengagement, Gush Katif, major area within Aza. Had we acted in Gush Katif, as we did in Amona, where there was actually violent refusal to leave, this might have saved Gush, and it might not have. But it definitely would have saved the houses in Amona. Had the state been licking the wounds of the police and settlers injured in Gush Katif until today, no one would have been motivated to act in Amona. The reality is, as we're going to discuss that the disengagement went forward without violent conflict for the most part, without great difficulty. And he says, that was our mistake. Because even if it wouldn't have worked, even if the government was bent on doing what it wanted to do, and we would have moved everybody out anyway, if the government had met strong opposition there, they wouldn't have dared to try it in Amona and in other areas. That's his, uh, that's his point of view, and it speaks to the anger 
involved, that speaks to the pain involved with this issue of removing Jews from their homes for the sake of disengagement then or other moves later on in, uh, in history. So I want to I start out by giving a brief digest of what led to the disengagement in the first place and then to talk about what the fallout has been. Clear? Okay. So first of all, um, Gaza, Gaza was part of the Ottoman Empire before World War I. You're talking about an area, if you visualize the map, in the southwest of Israel where the Mediterranean curves, right, hugging the coast there. The, um, that's the area which biblically is, for the most part, controlled by the Philistines, the Philistim, not to be confused with Palestinians. They're very different people with different DNA. But, the, um, but the, the Philistines had five major cities in that area, and some of them will be familiar to you. Ashdod was one of them. Um, Ashkelon was another one of them. Gat, another one. Ekron, and then the last one was Aza itself, for which the region is named. So that's the area we're talking about. And again, pre-World War I, it's part of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans collapse as part of World War I, and then, you have, and then it's taken over by the British Mandate. When the Mandate is dissolved, there's actually an attempt by the Arab League to create a special country in that place. But ultimately, it's controlled by Egypt. Egypt does not annex it, but Egypt takes control of the area. And then, in the Six-Day War in 1967, Israel gains control of, uh, of Aza. Now, in the 1970s, Ariel Sharon is Minister of Agriculture in Menachem Begin's government. And he supports a movement called Gush Emunim, which is very important in this whole discussion. Anyone here ever hear of Gush Emunim? Okay, so some people are familiar with Gush Emunim. Gush Emunim is a religious approach to settlement, meaning the idea of settling this land, both the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank, of moving Jewish communities in there, had many different motivations. There were those who said, let's move into this land because historically it was a part of Israel. There were those who said, let's move into this land because politically this way they won't be able to take it away from us and it's good land for us to have. There were all sorts of strategic motivations. The Gush Emunim approach was to say, this is the land that God gave to us. It's a religious motivation. Take a look at source number nine, please. A fellow by the name of Rabbi Ed Snitkoff writes a good digest of Gush Emunim. He says, The national trauma following the 1973 Yom Kippur War equaled the ecstasy that followed the Six-Day War. At this time, the members of the young religious faction left their burned-out tanks and bunkers with renewed determination that the secular strategic settlement plan was not to be dependent on any longer. The people who had suffered and nearly lost, nearly lost everything in 1973 said, you know what, this whole secular movement to settle is insufficient. And this crisis led to a meeting in Kibbutz Kfar Etzion in 1974, the outcome of which was the founding of Gush Emunim, Gush Eminem's platform defined the movement's mission in the following way. To bring about a major spiritual reawakening in the Jewish people for the sake of the full realization of the Zionist vision. In the knowledge that this vision's source and goal in the Jewish heritage and in Judaism's roots are the total redemption of both the Jewish people and the whole world. 
very much part of a, a push, a messianic push from the students of Rav Cook. They believe in settling the land as a spiritual vision. And Ariel Sharon supports it. He supports having Jews move there, developing communities there. That's the, uh, that's the situation that persists from the 1970s until you hit the Oslo agreements in the early 1990s, and then you see some pushback, and then you have the, uh, the, the well, I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs and attempts at peace treaties. I'm going to skip to 2001. Israel's system of government is party-based, meaning that when you vote for the Knesset, it's like here, right? You vote for the Knesset, you vote for the party, and the leader of the party, top of the list, is going to be the one who's going to put together a government, usually a coalition, always a coalition, with other parties, and, uh, and become prime minister. That was generally the way it worked. However, in 2001, it was not. In 2001, Israel experimented with direct elections for prime minister. I think they did it twice, but I think the 2001 is the one that's of interest to us. Um, because Ariel Sharon wins that direct election for prime minister in a landslide. Ehud Barak is his rival. The, the, uh, the vote tally is 62% to 38%. Landslide for Ariel Sharon. Well, in January of 2003... There's another election, this time the conventional variety, in which you elect the party and so on. And, the, uh, and during the campaign, the leader of the Labour Party, which is a left-wing party, a fellow by the name of Amra Mitzna, says as part of his platform, we are going to pull out from Aza. He says, it's impossible for us to defend it. You have to deploy your soldiers to defend small enclaves of Jews living among many, many more Arabs. Right? The, uh, the census in, uh, in the Gaza Strip as of 2010 was 1.6 million Palestinian Arabs living there. That's 2010, shortly after the 2005 census, of course, largely claiming that they descend from people displaced in 1948. But, the, um, but that's a huge number of people compared to thousands of Jews who are living there. So he says, you can't defend it. It's, from a PR perspective, a nightmare for us to have to worry about running it. They're not interested in really helping us move forward, but maybe this will jumpstart something that if they have their own place, they can develop it, they can build it, and maybe maybe terrorism comes to, uh, to a halt. That's the vision that Mitzna sells the nation. Sharon, for his part, says absolutely not. No way. Take a look at source number 10 from an article that appeared in the Haaretz newspaper in 2002. Prime Minister Ariel Sharon repeated today for the third time that he will not evacuate isolated settlements. In a meeting of the Knesset's committees for foreign affairs and security, Sharon said, quote, and this is a famous quote of his, the status of Nitzarim, one of the communities in Aza, is like the status of the Negev and Tel Aviv. It's all part of Israel. We're not evacuating anybody. That's Sharon's stance. His party, the Likud, wins. They get 29% of the vote. The next runner-up is Labor with 14% of the vote. So Sharon builds a coalition, and he gets a second term. That election, again, is January 2003. December of 2003... 
Ariel Sharon addresses the fourth Herzliya conference. The annual conference that goes on in Herzliya is, is often a place where major policy statements are made. So he gets up 11 months after being elected and says the following. Take a look at source number 11. Like all Israeli citizens, I yearn for peace. I attach supreme importance to taking all steps which will enable progress toward resolution of a conflict with the Palestinians. However, in light of the other challenges we are faced with, if the Palestinians do not make a similar effort toward a solution of the conflict, I do not intend to wait for them indefinitely. The purpose of the disengagement plan is to reduce terror as much as possible and grant Israeli citizens the maximum level of security. The process of disengagement will lead to an improvement in the quality of life and will help strengthen the Israeli economy, the disengagement plan is meant to grant maximum security and minimize friction between Israelis and Palestinians. Suddenly Sharon has a disengagement plan. And he goes forth promoting this throughout 2004. He presents his reasons for the disengagement, the ones that you saw here already. The plan goes before the UN. The uh, Israeli public opinion polls indicate that what they want is a general referendum. They want a national vote on it. Sharon refuses to put it to a national vote. The polls tend to indicate support for the plan somewhere in the 50 to 60 percent range. It varies based on, you know, who's giving the poll, what's happened yesterday, and so forth. But it's a slim majority that seem to support it in general. Within Sharon's own party, the Likud, uh, 60% oppose the disengagement plan. Sharon's party is against. Well, they move forward in the summer of 2005. And it happens. It's largely bloodless, very little in the way of the conflict that was predicted. But then you hit the fallout. And I don't just mean the rockets from this week. The, um, the cost of the disengagement runs in the billions of shekel. The evacuated families are largely hung out to dry. This after there had been all sorts of promises about providing them support, finding them new jobs, a place to live, and so on. And there are, of course, after that, commissions of inquiry, because we specialize in commissions of inquiry. So the commissions all say, it's true, the families did not receive what they were promised. The state controller is a fellow by the name of Michael Lindenstrauss. If you take a look at source number 12, a piece of his report. The report's findings, this is February 2006, only a few months after this happened. The report's findings clearly indicate that the Prime Minister's office, Selah Disengagement Authority, and several of the designated ministries had not been mindful enough to the absorption of the evacuees. There is no doubt that the evacuees, children and adults, elderly and toddlers, suffered from severe trauma in the evacuation and from the manner of their evacuation from the Gaza Strip. The evacuees paid a heavy personal price due to the evacuation. The improvement of the situation of the evacuees and their living conditions today is a duty imposed on the state and its institutions a duty of great importance. Not even a single evacuee should stay without the attention of the competent authorities or their complete assistance. All roads lead in these reports to the state and its institutions and must overcome all budget obstacles, give utmost priority to resettlement and rehabilitation of the evacuees. Any delay in this regard is a clear expression of continued failure. Evacuees are, el are eligible for immediate assistance. The sooner, the better. So writes the state controller, and he writes more. I only brought you a, uh, an excerpt that's available online. The, the, the reality is that the people who are evacuated are in many ways left to suffer. I believe the number today 
is that 14% of them are still unemployed. Um, the, uh, if you're familiar with the work of Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Remote, he created an organization geared towards just finding them jobs. That was his, uh, that was his effort, and for years worked at, uh, at trying to do that, where the government dropped the ball. Um, relations with the Palestinians, unfortunately, do not improve, right? We know the story. Hamas gets elected to run the Gaza Strip in January of 2006. And since then, we've had periodic missile attacks, four operations in Gaza, and so forth. Now, you could argue, and you would be right, that hindsight is 2020, that there was no way to know in 2004 what the results would be of a disengagement. You could make that argument, and many people do. You could also make the argument that things would have been worse if we stayed. You could make that argument. That's why I don't want to litigate the question of whether it was a good idea or not. um, But I do want to show you two important quotes. Number 13. IDF Chief of Staff Moshe Yalon made the following statement, and this is an excerpt of his statement made a year after disengagement. He says, There is no doubt that the disengagement failed. This failure was anticipated... It did not arise from deep strategic analysis. It, meaning disengagement, did not arise from deep strategic analysis, but from a political and personal crisis of the Prime Minister, Ariel Sharon. He was dealing with his own political problems at the time that he agreed to this, and the argument goes that he agreed to do this as a way of taking heat off of himself for some business deals he had been involved with. In great measure, disengagement was media spin, and those who planned and executed it were not people with background in strategy, security, policy, or history. They were image advisors. Spinologin. That's his word. I didn't want to translate that. Spinologin. You've learned a new Hebrew word for today. But he was the chief of staff. He was the chief of staff of the army. And he's telling you this wasn't a military decision. And the truth is, the IDF got used, we'll see a quote later on, the IDF was used largely as a manpower agency. Meaning, your mission when you sign up is to defend the state of Israel against people from the outside, not to move Jews out of their homes. By rights, if there's a law that says Jews may not live there, it should be enforced by the police. But the police aren't large enough and don't have the training and the equipment and so on. So they turn to the military. But the IDF chief of staff says, this wasn't our idea. That's one quote. The other quote comes from Yossi Balin, who supported the disengagement. He was a member of the left-wing Meretz party, and he's very open about his support. Source number 14. He's, he talks about the fallout from disengagement from his perspective, and he says this, meaning the disengagement, created among Palestinians a sense that Jews only understand force those Palestinians came to the conclusion that only use of force and more force and more force will remove Israel from the West Bank as it left Gaza, right? We got those Jews out by attacking them. That's what caused them to leave, not diplomacy. And he says, disengagement had two benefits. This is his explanation for why he supported it. One was to cause us to rule fewer Palestinians. The second was to create a precedent for mass evacuation of settlements. In those two aspects, it succeeded. But if anyone thought it would lead to calm, the disengagement failed. It was the dumbest way to leave Aza. Hachim Tupash is his Hebrew. The, uh, it was the dumbest way to leave Aza. And he supported it. He was behind the idea. So when you get a situation like this, you're guaranteed that you're going to have fallout. You can't, you can't get away with doing this. 
Again, whether it was the right move or the wrong move isn't my point. But number one, your prime minister ran on a platform of Nitzarim is like Tel Aviv and like Negba and was a supporter for decades of the settlement movement. You know they're going to feel betrayed because they were betrayed. Right? I mean, it's not a, it, this isn't the question. It's, it's a matter of history. And then when reports come out that number one, the people who were moved were abandoned, and number two, the people who supported it say, we always knew this wasn't going to deliver on the promises that Ariel Sharon made. Oh boy, like what, what do you think now is going to be the public reaction? It's predictable. And so what we're going to talk about is the, uh, what the fallout was, where things went from, uh, from this point. So I want to, I want to con- just concentrate on a few points about this. And again, I apologize for the monologue. I, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with, with the, uh, the schedule as it is. First of all, within society, there's a major lack of trust in the government's opinion and its promises. Now, you could say that's always the case. Whoever trusts the government and its promises. But now when you have something to point to, where they made promises and they didn't keep them, that really pushes it, and particularly within the religious Zionist camp, which, remember, had embraced the state of Israel like, I would almost say, no other group. Right? They viewed the state of Israel as a realization of a messianic vision. They viewed this as a gift from God. Take a look at source number 15. Rabbi Zalman Malamed was asked the question, will you still thank God and say Hallel on Yom Ha'atzmaut, on Israel Independence Day? And he says, we absolutely will. But however, he says, we criticize the government's steps and are very angry at them. It is hard to go about one's routine. On some level, we are also angry at the branches of the army and police who did this act of evicting Jews from Gush Katif, this evil crime. A leader within the community is saying this. His voice matters. Rabbi Yaakov Medan, another key voice in this, in number 16, he says, In the past, with all the fights, I thought we had something to learn from the secular elites. Now that I've seen the secular elites stab me in the back and turn their backs on their own values, democracy, human rights, I have nothing else to learn from them. The secular elites are the people who led the Labour Party for the most part. The people who made this disengagement happen in the interests of peace or in the interests of, well, he'll say, weakening the, uh, weakening the religious camp. Rabbi Midan goes on to write within the same piece that, um, that they were looking to stab religious Zionism in the back. That's his, uh, that's his phrase. They were coming after us. Well, it's not just that generation, right? It's the next generation as well. The kids who are adolescents at that point. So there's a woman by the name of Zahavid Gross, Dr. Zahavid Gross, who did a study on the attitude, you see it here in number 17, the attitude of religious Zionist adolescents to the state of Israel after the disengagement. She does the study not long after. It's a year or two after the disengagement. You can find it online. If you Google the title there, or you Google any line from this, you'll be able to find it. I only brought you an excerpt. The main questions that occupied the religious Zionist leadership prior to and after the implementation of the disengagement plan was what should their attitude be toward the state of Israel that has taken such a political action? Is the state still legitimate? Can we as religious people continue to cooperate with it? During the special prayer for the country, can we pray for the government and wish them success in what they are doing? 
To buy answers to these questions, I conducted a qualitative research study among 78 male religious Zionist adolescents between the ages of 18 and 23. In interviews, I asked them what impact the disengagement plan had on their attitude to the state of Israel. Why did she pick 18 to 23? Army. Army service, exactly. The largest group of adolescents said the issue didn't bother them at all. When I asked, it took them a few moments to answer, saying, what, the disengagement? Who remembers it at all? Practically speaking, it didn't bother me at all. I saw the dismantling on TV, but as they say, life goes on. We will continue to serve in the army and love our country. This is another one responding. We don't have any place else to go. It should be noted, she adds, that this kind of answer was prominent mainly among adolescents who live in the center in the north, but not in the south. Right? Those who didn't experience it personally tended to be better able to deal with it. But then she goes on to quote other reactions. Another kind of reaction was found among very religious people who saw the disengagement as betrayal by secular people, or by the state, or by democracy. Democracy had become the enemy of religion and of religious people, and the conclusion was they have to exclude themselves from the state. We're seceding. We want nothing to do with the state and its institutions. Some of the adolescents believed that the religious community needed to take over the country, and not necessarily in a democratic fashion. She's actually overstating, I have to say. She's overstating here, meaning when you read the paper itself, they don't speak about violent revolt, which is what she makes it sound like. What they do talk about is simply an increase in the numbers of religious Zionists in various government institutions will lead to a takeover. You can see some of it in the piece I quoted. It is only a matter of time until we will run the state. The banishment, as they call it, has taught us that we must take over the army, the Supreme Court. Our graduates have to take the lead everywhere. That's what they're talking about, and that's why you see a not only a statement of pride, but a statement of power in the fact that officers in the IDF are now, if not majority, very close to majority, religious Zionists. Even though for, as a percentage of the country it doesn't make sense, that's the reality, is that you're seeing this growth. In, I don't have particular numbers, it's just something that you see quoted in the media all the time, and I've absorbed it from the media, so take what I say with a grain of salt. But... Um, but that's the impression, certainly, is that the religious Zionist community is taking the lead in institutions, and that will ultimately sway policy. Other adolescents, now you go to the other extreme, other adolescents expressed the belief that the religious community had itself disengaged from Israeli society. We've made a mistake by building our own communities. They felt the religious should, quote, settle in the hearts of the general population in order to change the situation for the good of the state. The disengagement is proof that we are still not part of Israeli society. We haven't settled in the hearts of Am Yisrael, the people of Israel. It is a holy compromise. In other words, we need to win hearts and minds. We need to be part of the nation. And then the last view says, well, this must be what God wants and it's part of a plan. Some of the interviewees, though they opposed the deportation and viewed it as immoral, actively participated in it. They walk a thin line. Democracy and the law are top priorities. They say Hatikva, raise the flag, obey the law, and view army service as a supreme value, yet are critical of them. They live in permanent cognitive dissonance. The evacuation was a real tragedy, but it was the government's decision. As religious people, we have to believe that we don't know all the explanations. Perhaps there was real danger, it was really pikuach nefesh, critical to saving life. Who knows? So you have different groups, and you have some, a large part, she says it's the largest group, that is willing to say, move on. And then you have all these other groups that are struggling 
to, to deal with it. Now, again, this survey is taken a year or two out. I don't know what happens if you take the same survey now, right, 13 years after disengagement as opposed to a year or two after, what the next generation knows and what the next generation thinks. But what you see here is that there is real fallout in terms of a lack of trust in the government and in, uh, and in society. That's one. A second element of fallout the changing role of the rabbi in the IDF. Classically, in any army, the army's ideal rabbi is supportive. Right? The army's ideal rabbi in any, in any army is to contribute to the overall mission as charted by those who are in charge. Now, when I was in rabbinical school, somebody came to Yeshiva University to speak to us about military chaplaincy, wanting to, uh, wanting to recruit guys to, to go into it. And I had always been frustrated because, as a result of family decisions, I wasn't able to go into the IDF. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll become a chaplain, a military chaplain in, uh, in the American army. So after the big public conversation, I go to have a one-on-one meeting with him privately, and it's a complete 180. You don't want to do that. You don't, you don't want to become military chaplain. Well, you just said. <laughs> what do you mean? He said, because you have to remember, if your goal is to get them to come to services, if your goal is to teach them, you're working at cross-purposes with the army. The army isn't interested in its soldiers becoming religious. The army wants you to be available so that if there's a time of crisis and someone needs to talk to a rabbi, they'll be able to talk to a rabbi. So that they will be able to carry out their mission more, more efficiently. That was, his, uh, that was his unvarnished opinion of, uh, of what it would be like to go into the army. Okay. Right or wrong, I don't know, but the basic point he made is true. Which is, an army doesn't employ people in order for them to work against the mission of the army. In their mind, the job of the rabbi is to support the, uh, the mission. Well, in the disengagement, you had a push from quarters of religious society and rabbis to disobey the order and to say, we will not help move Jews out of their homes. Rabbi Avram Shapira, at one point the chief rabbi of the state of Israel, um, took that opinion. He said, you have to disobey the, uh, the disengagement order so that you have rabbis in a position of telling their students, including military, you know, military rabbis at times, telling their students that actually they have to disobey. So that that's something that, that begins there. You can make the argument that it existed at earlier times. There were other times when there were religious crises, but this was a, uh, a watershed moment, and it became something that moved on from there to other evacuations of communities, Amona, Chomesh, communities in the West Bank. And so that's a second issue. And then the third and last issue that I'll point out in terms of the fallout is within the world of religious Zionism itself, you've seen something of a split in the, uh, in the years since. The, um, there are two streams classically within religious Zionism. One stream could be identified with the students of Rav Kook. And the students of Rav Kook took a messianic view of the state. This is a realization of our redemption. It is evolving. Rav Kook never lived to see the state itself, but, the, but his students did. He passed away in the 1930s. His son, Rav Yehuda, uh, was active in the state. So they, um, so they took the view that the creation of these institutions, the building up of a land, the partnership of secular Zionists with religious Zionists, all of this is contributing to the arrival of the Messiah. Gush Emunim, very much a part of that philosophy. That's one group. And then you have a second group 
which perhaps is best known among the students of Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, which said, having a state is wonderful. Having a state of Israel means that Jews are able to have a place where they can observe the mitzvot, where they can study Torah, where they can be united, where they can draw close to God, where they can be safe. All of these different values exist in having a state. Is it the start of the redemption? Could be. But it doesn't have to be in order for it to be valuable. The messianic aspect of it is not integral to the Zionism of this group. If you take a look at source number 18, Professor Doe Schwartz wrote an article called Religious Zionism and the Struggle Against the Evacuation. And he describes these two different camps. One he calls the earthly land and the other the celestial land. And the earthly land is what I think of as the Rapsalovichic camp. The group that says it's a platform and a condition for the full realization of halakha. It's national territory. Don't get metaphysical. And then the celestial land is the one that says, no, this is actually of mystical value and it's going to lead to the ultimate redemption. You can quibble with his terms because the reality is that the messianic camp, what he calls the celestial camp, is very strong among religious Zionists in Israel. Whereas the more earthly camp tends to be more dominant in North America, in my experience, perhaps in the diaspora in general. The view that's more utilitarian and less messianic about the state. And it makes sense, right? First of all, because Rav Cook operated in Israel, and that's where his students were. Or Soloveitchik operated in New York, and that's where his students were. So on a very basic level, that would be why. Also because those who took the more messianic view were more likely to make Aliyah were more likely to join Gush Emunim, right? It made sense if you're messianic in your outlook. Those who are more pragmatic in their outlook and said, look, it, it's important from a Jewish, from the perspective of Judaism, it's good to have, didn't necessarily feel the same compulsion to, to move to, to Israel. The reason why I say you could quibble with it is because I talked about this in a different group at one point, and, uh, and an Israeli came up to me very incensed and said just the opposite. We who live in Israel take the more mundane view of the land. We live there every day. We have plumbers and we have, you know, we, we're, we're the ones who are living there. It's Monday. So I don't want to get caught up in celestial versus earthly. The, the point isn't the terms. The point is the messianic versus the group that says realization of redemption would be great, but it's not inherent in my Zionism. Well, the reaction to the disengagement splits along those lines. The people who believe that the state of Israel is messianic in nature are adamant that there can't be a disengagement. You can't give up an inch of land. Take a look at source number 19. Leading rabbi backs in subordination. Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu. He says, we have to clarify, the article is quoting him, we have to clarify that we are not talking about disengagement, but rather about withdrawal, Eliyahu said and expressed his confidence that the plan would not materialize. I say time and again, it won't happen, he said. And that was his insistence. It won't happen. And his students believed it. The night before, they were saying, it won't happen. It's simple. We don't know what's going to happen. Angels are going to come down from the sky and prevent it. But it's not going to happen. That was one camp. And on the other hand, the religious Zionist camp that said, you know what, Israel is a wonderful place for fulfillment of Judaism, for Jews to live and be safe and, and, and build a society, said, could happen. And from their perspective, the fact that it was without bloodshed and violence was a win. 
I brought you notes from an American rabbi sermon from the Shabbat after the disengagement. I know him, he prefers to be anonymous. But listen to this. Number 20. Wholesale eviction of a resident population of thousands of their own people with a questionable national majority supporting the move, and yet without bloodshed? Sure, there were some cases of violence, but on such a small scale as to be negligible. Far more soldiers crying, far more mothers handing their babies to the soldiers to hold, far more minyanim composed of both soldiers and residents than there were violent attacks. It's a statement of how wonderful it is that this happened and we weren't at each other's throats. Now, there's a lot to be said for that. However, the, messy, the messiness, and messiness is, a, is an odd word, I don't want to use it, but the, the camp that says that the state of Israel is the start of our redemption, and we can't give up an inch of it, is offended by this statement. There should have been fighting. There should have been violence over it. And what you end up with is, as a result of this, an element of skepticism of, and suspicion of each side towards the other afterwards. Sort of like the, um, the, the messianic Zionist camp looking at those who are not and saying, well, are you really Zionist after all? If you're willing to accept disengagement, we question whether you're authentically Zionist. Whereas those who are of the non-messianic camp look at the messianic and say, you know, we think you're not in touch with reality. And so that becomes a major split between the two. Now, I don't want to overstate it, because we're still in the early going after the disengagement, even though it's been 12 going on 13 years, in the sense that you need to let a gener full generation go by before you're going to really see. So what is the impact overall? It could be wounds like these heal. It could be that mistrust of the government lapses into sort of general mistrust of the government, as opposed to the intense kind that follows the disengagement. It could be that the, the rabbis in the IDF make their peace with the instructions of the IDF over time. It could be that the two parts of the religious Zionist camp also grow back together again. It's entirely possible. But what I wanted to highlight with this is this issue of tension that goes on in Israel at that time, the feeling of betrayal, the question of do we take the what seems like the practical decision, certainly to at least one group, do we suspect that there are political motivations and actually there's something else going on here and it's not everything that they're promising it to be, this has been a major shaper of the identity of the state of Israel since 2005. Now, I said in the beginning, I originally wanted to fold the Rabin assassination into this also. Because the truth of the matter is, to look at disengagement in 2005 without looking at the assassination of Rabin in 1995, you're missing a whole piece of the puzzle. Right? The strife that begins there between religious Zionists and those who are against definitely has an impact on the decision to pull out from, uh, from Aza. So what we're seeing is only a piece of the picture. And you can go beyond that and say, you know, well, let's look at Ben-Gurion versus Begin, and you could look at it into the context of the greater state. But certainly the Rabin assassination is an important element within this. But I want to close by, um, by, by adding one more note, because I don't want to end on such a downer. The, um, I mean, seriously, <laughs> they, uh, that's terrible. Um, but I want to point you to the vision of Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet in the beginning of the second temple. The, um, the Zechariah the prophet saw among Jews a split between political authority and halachic authority. Meaning in his case, the Melech, the king, 
and the religious authority of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And at one point he envisioned a menorah. And the menorah, this is read as the Haftorah traditionally on Hanukkah, the, uh, the menorah is fed by two olive trees that send their oil directly into the menorah. And he asks the angel who's speaking to him, what's the symbolism here of these two olive trees? And take a look at number 21. I'm skipping his question to his aunt, and he answered me. The angel answered me and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my master, because that's the way Zachariah and the angel interact. Don't you know? No, I don't know. Can you tell me? Then he said, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the master of the whole earth. The olive, the olive trees represent the two who are anointed. We have two anointed positions. The Melech, the king, and the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And when they join forces together, when they join forces to feed this menorah, their oil together, that will be a symbol of redemption. When the religious side and the political side are able to, to join forces, that will be uh, a sign that, that, that redemption is here. There is so much more to say. I apologize again for, for the way this worked out, but I only found out after we had started the course that I was going to be stuck with this schedule, and so I didn't want to change the date altogether. I am you know, very happy to respond to correspondence by email as always. I'm not going to be able to take questions at this point, looking at the time, especially because I got a text from the panel head saying that... Um, yeah. Sorry? No, not saying where am I, but he is warning me that I better be there soon. So, um, okay, so thank you very much for participating in the course.